Good morning, everyone. Junior church, fourth grade down to four years old. Please walk to the front here for junior church. I've been uh, accused of a few things here lately. Um, I'm not going to say Owen's name, but I've said that I need to get better jokes, saying that I'm not funny enough in certain things, and um, um, it really hurt my feelings. Not, not really. I don't have any. Um, so usually when I'm reading stories or jokes for the sermon, I try to think of something that most of you will like, not just me. Um, I understand not everybody has an advanced sense of humor like I do. That's why you don't laugh at everything. Um, this one made me think of Olin. So if you don't like it, this one I read as an oh, I bet Olin will like this one. Um, there's a story of a, two couples or two people who are riding on a boat. Sorry, on a plane. See, it's already Olin style. It's messed up. All right. The pilot's voice came over the intercom and said, "You'll notice on the left side of the plane, uh, one of our engines has failed. Please do not be alarmed. Um, we can still fly with three engines, but we'll probably arrive around 15 minutes later than scheduled." About 15, 20 minutes later, the intercom comes on again, and the pilot says, I don't want to alarm you too much, but you may have noticed one of the other engines has failed. We are not worried. You can still fly with two engines. We'll probably be a half hour later than scheduled now. And wouldn't you know, about 15, 20 minutes later, the pilot comes back on and says, um, I have more bad news. A third engine has failed. We still can fly. We will still be able to get there, but we're going to be 45 minutes late now. And that's when somebody like Olin turned to the person next to him and says, if another engine goes out, we'll just never make it on time at all. He said, no, never mind. Okay. Okay, a story like that can make a good joke. Um, but if it happened to you, if you were on the plane when the engine goes out, it's not funny. Especially if it happens a second time. Because when you're flying, all your security is placed into the person, the pilot, and the equipment around you. Your security is wrapped up in those engines running just right. And many times in our life, our security often is dependent on these various factors in our lives, such as jobs, our bank accounts, families, friends, health our position in society. We become secure in those things, thinking those are the engines that keep us going. A person with a good job, nice house, a loving family, and respect of others, good health, what else will that person need, right? Maybe they don't even need God because they are flying high in their life. And therein lies the problem. We find security in these things. And God wants us to know that we need to find security ultimately in Him. All those other things are temporary, no matter how good they may seem. But only God is eternal and reliable. How many of you, when you were learning to ride a bike, used training wheels? Okay, how many of you don't know how to ride a bike, apparently? How many of you rode a bike without training wheels at all? You just... Okay, there's a distinct generation there. All those under that generation had training wheels. Okay, we'll just say that. 
Those, those are those little side wheels they put on the back to coddle, I mean, help people learn to ride a bike. Okay, they, they put them on there, and, and once you learn how to ride the bike, they take them off. Well, then they made advanced versions where you slide them up higher so it makes the bike tip a little more, and the person could safely learn their balance and all that. What if you are afraid to take the training wheels off? What if you're in fifth and sixth grade still with training wheels? When my boys were learning to ride their bikes, they had two different approaches. Brady evaluated the bike. He actually tested the little training wheels to make sure they were right. He wanted to make sure it was okay. Austin jumped on and took off. Those were their approaches on it. Now, both had training wheels at that point, and eventually they, they got pretty good at it. However, there came a time when I wanted to take the training wheels off. I've already given you the approach of how they did it. What do you think Austin did? Training wheels are off. He got on, took off, and fell. Picked it up, got on, fell. He just kept doing that until he kept going. Brady, on the other hand, I can't do that. You can get on the bike. No, I'll die. He was a little bit of a drama king back then. He just... I said king, or are you just not surprised? So he, he just didn't believe he could do it. These things were supposed to be for his safety, and me as his loving father must hate him now because they're not on the bike anymore. So I had to put them back on and adjust them a little higher so that it would give him a little bit of security. And he would ride, and then he would tense up because it would tip just a little bit, and I can't do this! And then he would cry and go inside. He was a lot younger than fifth or sixth grade, okay, just so you know. <laughs> this was like kindergarten, okay? Um, here's the sad thing, though. Many people, many people even in this room are still finding their security in the training wheels of life, in the things of this world. And when we do that, we neglect to trust God. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're trusting these things rather than God. And these training wheels become our security, our safety net, and in turn we start honoring them and they become an idol in our life. And I believe that in many cases, God allows us to lose those safety nets, those training wheels in life, in order to help us develop to trust in Him. This year, we're going through the whole life of David. We're pursuing a heart after God like David was trying to do. And this leads us to David. We're going to be uh, going to touch various parts of his life story um, in First Samuel chapters 18 through 21 today. And there are several life stories, and I, I'm just going to tell you, reading through the life of David and trying to pick out all these different... Man, there is so much packed in here, and, and trying to plan this out, the whole sermon schedule and all that, without missing important things. It is very challenging, in it, and I'm really liking it. And as I came to this, this is a broad spectrum, and I'm like, how do I do this without missing important things? So... Just because we're to chapter 21 today doesn't mean we're not backing up and hitting some other stuff. 
But I want to focus on this one area, this type of thing that's happening. In our last sermon, when I was up here, um, we saw Saul had become very jealous of David. It was a turning point in their relationship. Saul's jealousy of David consumed him. Within him was this ongoing civil war. He was miserable, he was suspicious, he was angry. Starting verse 10 of 1 Samuel 18. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Now, just think about that for a moment. If, if you were knowing that somebody wasn't very happy with you, they were just in a bad mood, and they, you walk into the room and they're holding a spear, would you want to just sit in the room with them? No. David was doing his job. He was trying to help King Saul. Picture this volatile scene. He's doing what he can. He's playing this lyre. He's this harp. He's singing these songs, trying to bring comfort and calm King Saul when, whoosh, here comes this spear. And notice it said he wanted to pin him. He didn't want to kill him. He wanted to pin him there. He wanted to torture. That's enough to scare anyone. Yet the verse doesn't say David was scared of Saul. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. That verse made me stop. I think it's very intriguing. The very people who are out there trying to get us are often the ones who are scared of us. When we are living in God's will, when we have God's favor on us, they want to pin us with accusations. They want to pin us with negativity. They're scared of us. Remember, at this point, David hasn't done anything wrong. He's been a model of humility, dependability, and integrity. He has done everything right, but no matter what, his king, the superior, is suspicious of him. This evil, tormented spirit is, is guiding Saul to be out of control. And I think it's probably terrifying in both sides, in Saul's mind and in David's. If, if Dustin came into the office and I started throwing spears at him, because I am his superior in everything, I don't think he'd be staying in the office very long. It, would any of you want to stay in the workplace where somebody is hurling spears intending to pierce you and pin you to the wall? I would be done. I'd quit that job. I'm out of there. And yet David didn't do that. He didn't stop serving Saul. Later in a blind fury, Saul ordered both Jonathan, remember Jonathan is Saul's son, and the rest of his men to murder David at their earliest opportunity. Jonathan stood up for David for a moment anyways. And, and the truth seemed to sink into Saul for a moment. In chapter 19, verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan and he took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Saul has got this turning point, right? He's no longer trying to kill David. That's in verse 6. 
you go down to verse 9, though, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat with his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the liar, still doing his job. But he eluded Saul. Or, uh, Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. David had to escape. He had to flee. These words are going to be a characterization of David for this next chapter of his life. David will do something right and yet will be persecuted. And he's going to flee and escape. And this pattern is fleeing and escaping, trying to survive. Is all he's trying to do. And look how God works with David, removing all of these training wheels that are around him. The first thing David lost was the training wheels of his position. He was up in the king's courts. He had the favor of the king. He was the leader of an army. He had killed his ten thousands, as they would sing. He'd been brought in the army. He's proven himself faithful and heroic. But now all of that is gone in the flash of a spear. Never again would David serve in Saul's army. His position is gone. And that training wheel is moved. The next support God removed was David's family. His wife. We, we haven't mentioned her really yet. We, we said it a few Sundays ago that she fell in love. But you remember Saul promised a man who slew Goliath to have his daughter's hand. Well, Saul backed out on that promise and gave that daughter to a different person. But he discovered, Saul discovered that one of his other daughters was in love with David. And Saul, way to bring David's demise, he used his daughter as a pawn asking David to pay a dowry for a reputation. You have to kill a hundred Philistines. If you're going to marry my daughter, and she's lovely, oh, you've got to marry her. I want you in this king court, but you've got to prove that you're worthy. So you've got to kill a hundred Philistines, basically. Secretly hoping David would die in the process and he'd be rid of him. David, however, managed to double that number that Saul required without getting hurt, which made Saul even more afraid of him. So that's how they kind of got into this situation. Go to verse 11 and 19. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. David became a fugitive. And here's where we see what his wife Remember, she loved him. What she did to aid his escape. If you think she's doing what's right, look in verse 13. Michael took the <clears throat> household idol and laid it in the bed and put a, a guilt of goat's hair on its head and covered it with his clothing. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Saul sent messengers to see if David, saying, Bring him to me on his bed so that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of, gold, uh, quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? There is a lot in here that Michael did. She lied to her father, saying, I had to. 
he threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. Well, so she's not full of integrity there. David's wife deliberately here walks away from David. She lied about David. And here's something very interesting. What did she use to trick people? The household idol. Wait a minute. I thought these were God's people who didn't worship idols. Why would there be a household idol there? This lie didn't help David that, oh, he threatened me, so I just let him go. This idol didn't help David. It only deepened Saul's anger against him, and it showed a division between Michael and her husband, David. And there went another training wheel. Verse 18, so David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel. He told him all that Saul had done to him, and Samuel took David with him to live at uh, Naoth. David goes to the man of God, the prophet Samuel, the one who anointed him as king. An archaeological dig in Naoth some time ago turned up something very interesting. In the ancient remains, they found what would be called what we'd call condominiums, houses built 